I don't know, but I might like Easter even better than Christmas. It is just the time of the year where all of the things we think about and all of the things that we stand for, all of the things we celebrate, all the things we proclaim kind of come together because it just makes sense. And each year we try to uh, take a different vantage point, a different angle in looking at uh, some of the Easter stories. And uh, this year we want to do it a little differently. I want to talk about places. I roll cue. This is where you go, we're about to have five weeks of how I spent my summer vacation. I would have shown you pictures except that our trip in February got canceled. I've got tons and tons of pictures, but uh, I would get fixated on the pictures, but I need to keep it moving because each of the places has a story. Think about that for a second in terms of your own life and all the places that you have been and, and the story in those places. The people that were there, the events that were there, the circumstances that were there, the, the things that happened, maybe even the things that didn't happen. We uh, had a, our prayer time uh, early morning this week, and each morning we were uh, praying early in the chapel, and for some reason one morning God decided to occupy an entire morning of my thought life with places. And I thought about places that I had been, and, and, and of course, I had already started studying and, and kind of had this in my brain, so, so God kind of put the question in my head, what are significant places in your life, Alan? <clears throat> and I went with Fort Worth, Texas to start with. That would be birth. That is significant for everyone. And then I said, well, <clears throat> what are some of the other significant places? Well, I, I started following Jesus in Richardson, Texas. A bus came through the neighborhood picking up reprobate kids. My wife and my daughter, my, what relative? <laughs> Sister. Wife was saved when she was born. Anyway, we got on the bus, and they talked to us about Jesus, and one of my most treasured memories has bookends because the pastor who led me to Christ uh, about 35 years later came to hear me preach unexpectedly. And I, one of my, he died in, uh, of COVID in January of 2021, but, but one of my most treasured memories is a picture with him uh, after the morning service when he said, it turns out one of the bus kids did okay. I think a lot about uh, uh, the church that pretty much discipled me, uh, where I understood my call to ministry, Pine Lake, Georgia, Pine Lake Baptist Church, a little community in Stone Mountain, has two traffic lights. If you've ever run either one of them, you have contributed to painting crosswalks in Pine Lake because the cop sits right there, the cop sits right there. And that little church had a, an amazing impact on my life and a whole lot of other lives. We can, we can name 30 or 35 young men and women who are in full-time ministry or who, who went to full-time ministry out of the youth group of that church over a 15-year sort of time frame. 
I think about New Orleans where Judy and I met and married and, and where I did seminary training and later returned to teach. And, and that was a significant place. I, I think about uh, back to Dunwoody where uh, my daughter was born when we lived here. And, and, and each one of those places, for some reason, God just rehearsed those over and over again. I thought about all the schools I'd gone to, all the uh, churches that I'd been to, all the churches that I'd served. all the uh, And it was like the places just really stayed in my head. And, I, and, and what I hope to do of this series is to talk about how all the places that Jesus went, especially in the last week of his life, how all those led to the empty tomb, how all of those led to the resurrection, how each place had significance as you sort of walk that way. Now, here's the spoiler alert. I can't take them all in order. I know that some of you are a little OCD and you would rather I take them all in order, but here's the deal. Most of what we know of Jesus' life from the Gospels happened in the last week of his life. So Matthew spends a third of his gospel with the last week of Jesus' life. Mark spends a third of his gospel in the last week of Jesus' life. Luke spends a quarter of his gospel in the last week of Jesus' life. John spends 50% of his narrative in the last week. So I'm going to go over five weeks, but basically it happened in seven days. And today we look at the first of those days, six days uh, before the Passover. And so this is the, 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 the two stories that we're going to look at today actually sort of straddle the, the, the events that triggered the crucifixion and then the resurrection. Here's where I hope to go. Miracles happen in obscure places. And I hope you're already thinking about places in your own life, places that, that were significant to you. Miracles happen in little out-of-the-way places like Pine Lake or like Bethany. Things are not always as they seem. When we are in a place, we don't always see what God is doing there. When I was a, a freshman in high school and first started going to Pine Lake Baptist Church, I had no idea that a decade later I would kneel at the altar there and be ordained into the gospel ministry. No idea. I was just a kid. It was the closest church to our neighborhood. My parents didn't go to church, so that's where my sister and I could find our way. We don't have any idea what might happen in these little out-of-the-way places. And so I want to walk towards the cross, towards the empty tomb. A lot of times we, we sing the song or, or lead me to the cross or down the Via Della Rosa, and we, we think of the, <clears throat> the pathway through the streets of Jerusalem where Jesus went. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but the the stations of the cross really aren't all that biblical. They, they, they are things that we have come up with in order to think about the pathway to the cross. But there are stories that, that are places, that are people, that are significant, that guide us to an understanding of what Jesus did and maybe challenge us to what He might do with us or to us or in spite of us, or maybe even through us. So that's where I want to go over uh, the next little while. I want to uh, call the series Destination Resurrection, where we look at the places and the events that happened along the way, and we start with Bethany. 
There are a couple of slogans that I usually tell you at Easter that I want you to kind of have in your mind. One is that we, if we kneel at the manger but not at the cross, we miss the point of both. This is perhaps one of my new uh, sayings about Easter that just sticks in my mind. The cross without the resurrection is simply a martyr's death. There were thousands of people nailed to crosses in the first century. There's one Roman general who brags about being responsible for the crucifixion of over 2,000 Christians single-handedly. There were, this was a, a form of capital punishment, a public form of humiliating, painful death that was exacted on lots and lots and lots of people. Without the resurrection, the cross is just another martyr. Jesus on the cross is just another martyr. God knew that we needed bodily, physical resurrection. We needed to see someone come back to life in order for us to believe that he was in charge of life after death. We, we needed that. We humans needed that. God didn't need that. God didn't need the resurrection. God didn't need the cross. He chose to do it that way so we as humans could understand the, the payment for our sin, the, the bloody, torturous death on the cross, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. We, the song said that. We, we needed that for us. And then we needed a bodily resurrection so that we could understand that God was in charge of that kind of thing. That, that when our loved one dies, we can have hope because there is life beyond this life. And so today we look at destination resurrection. How, how big a deal is this? Paul said it was a game changer or a deal breaker, depending on how you look at it. He said, if we don't have the resurrection, why are we here at all? If we don't have the resurrection, why do we have church? Why do we bother? This is the way he said it. He said, if the dead aren't raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. It's a big, big deal. And so we proclaim the resurrection. We channel our thoughts towards the resurrection. We journey towards the resurrection, looking at places that we can handle, tangible things, things that we, okay, I've been places. I've been to obscure places. And if you've ever been to Israel, you've probably been to Bethany. And if ever you've seen a picture that any of your friends have taken if they've been to Israel, the money shot that everybody gets in their group is a shot standing at this little precipice, this little overlook thing with a wall behind you, and behind the group is visible the gold dome of the rock, usually the uh, dome of the Holy Sepulcher, and kind of the city of Jerusalem. If you ever took that picture, you were standing in Bethany. It's two miles east of Jerusalem. It's at the, the, the top of the Mount of Olives. It is a place of obscurity, a place where you wouldn't expect anything to happen. Today, we might call it a suburb. It's, it's so, so close to Jerusalem. John goes out of the way to tell us it's a two-mile walk. Fifteen stadia, the, the word that he uses here, is a two-mile walk. Why is that important? Because that was the uh, distance that was allowed to walk on the Sabbath. And Jesus walked back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem. Usually when he was ministering in Jerusalem, he would stay in Bethany. 
And so it's a place of obscurity. Let's read a little bit of a story that uh, happened there. This is from John chapter 11, and, and if you've got your Bible or your swipey thing or whatever it is, I'm going to do a lot of Scripture that I'm not necessarily going to put on the screen. So we're going to look all the way through John 11 and John 12. Uh, I've tried to spread them out where I didn't put all the words on the same screen, but when I put all of 11 and all of 12, there was like 50, 11 slides, and that wasn't good. Here we go. Now, one other word of caution. There are four books in the Bible that sort of tell us about Jesus' life. We call them the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are also called synoptic Gospels, a word that you'll never use again. And they are called that because they are kind of interested in the what happened question. So they, they, they talk about what happened. John is not considered one of those because he really cares what happened, but that's not what he's mainly concerned with. He doesn't really care what happened, when or where or in what order. He cares why it happened. So whenever you read John's gospel, the why question sort of hovers over all of it more than the what or the when or the where. And so actually we, we have a, a duplicate story, or it seems like a duplicate story, that we're going to get to in just a moment. Spoiler alert. So here we are in John, and he has grouped two chapters together that don't necessarily flow chronologically. We don't know how much time passes between chapter 11 and chapter 12, but there are two relevant stories to our theme, our topic, what happened at this place, Bethany, because both of them happened there. And so he says, there was a certain man who was ill. Make sure we know who the guy is. His name is Lazarus. He's got some sisters, Martha and Mary. And then John gives us what in the Marvel movies is called an Easter egg. He, he drops something that hasn't happened yet that's going to happen soon, and it's important. So, so, so here is a prequel or a, an Easter egg. He says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That doesn't happen until chapter 12. But it also happened in Matthew's gospel. It also happened in Mark's gospel. And a different version of it happened in Luke's gospel. Now, just in case you're going to listen to Erica's amazing song at the, uh, after I get to, to speak for a while, her song is about an alabaster vase, an alabaster jar. Well, that story is another Mary, or at least we think it was Mary. We think it was Mary Magdalene, and it's described in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. That is not this verse at all. That is not this story at all. Two different times that there was a lady who was so overcome with worship, with her, her unworthiness, with a sense of, uh, of who Jesus was. Two different times his feet were anointed with perfume and his feet were dried with hair. I'll get to that in a second. 
So the sisters sent to him, here's a, a sidebar, he says, the, uh, Lazarus is ill. And he wasn't just ill, he was dead, which is really ill. And so they, he, he was kind of knocking on the door at this point. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness doesn't lead to death. Well, remember the timeline. There's a, there's a four-day timeline that you kind of got to put in your head. So it does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified. Jesus loved Martha, loved sister, loved Lazarus. When he heard with, uh, that Lazarus was ill, he did what any friend would do. He didn't go anywhere for two days. And so if they sent him a message where he was and where they were, if they sent him a message that Lazarus was ill, it would have taken a day to travel. He, they were in Bethany. He was in the Judean wilderness. Then he waited two days, and then it would have taken him a day to travel. So keep four days in mind. I'm going to get to it in a second. So he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So you've got this obscure place, but it tells us that this amazing event happened. The rest of chapter 11 is about that event I'm going to read a little bit of it, and then I want to zero in on a, on a part that I don't have on screen, but I want you to get it. After he heard the news, he said, okay, guys, let's go on. And uh, they said, well, okay, whatever. Uh, weren't they trying to kill you the last time you were there? Well, yeah. And then Thomas says the, the famous uh, statement in verse 16. He says, so Thomas called the twin, said to the other disciples, hey, let's go so we can die with him. Optimistic kind of outing. So verse 17 says, now when Jesus had come, when he got to Bethany, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So by the time Jesus heard about this, Lazarus was already dead. If he's been in the tomb four days, that, they probably didn't bury Well, maybe they did. I, I don't know. I'm figuring a little, few hours to prepare his body, and, and then they put him in the tomb. So he died on day one. He was buried on day two. The uh, uh, messenger got to Jesus on day two or three or four. So he'd been dead. There wasn't anything that Jesus could have done, but the sisters said both of them separately, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. They had seen him heal people. They, they knew that part, right? They, they'd seen him heal people, and, and, and they'd seen him cure disease, and they'd seen him set demons out of people. They'd seen those kind of miracles. Nobody had ever seen resurrection, with the possible exception of in the Old Testament, there was a guy named Elijah who healed a little girl who may have been really sick or she may have been really dead. It is a little unclear. But in this passage... He's going to do something they've got no frame of reference for. They had the, it's like us. When, when we are in grief, and, and we on staff did five funerals this past week, and, and we, it was just an extraordinary week where we walked alongside of families, and if it weren't for the hope of eternal life, I don't know what I would say at a funeral. And so here they're going, I don't have any framework for that, but you've got to listen to the language. Please get this if you don't get anything else. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, verse 18, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I will do whatever, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Okay, so keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to it in just a second. Eventually, Mary gets the same news, says uh, the, the teacher's coming, the teacher's here. Verse 32, now when Mary came to the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Bethany was an obscure place, but it was a place of expectation and of miracles. It was a place where people knew they needed Jesus. But I want you to hear again what Martha said. And Mary also said it. They said, if only you had been here. I don't know about your prayer journal, but I am willing to go out on a limb here and bet that there are some if-only prayers in your journal. I know there are in mine. God, if only you would do this. If only you had done that. If only you would intervene here. If only you would rearrange this. If only you would direct this circumstance. If only my son, if only my dad, if only my boss, if only my neighbor, if only I hadn't, and if only I had, I, I am really sure that all of us have lots of those kind of prayers. But I wonder how many of those entries in our journal are followed by an even so declaration. You saw what she said? Even so... Whatever you ask of God, that's what's going to happen. She wasn't thinking resurrection, had no framework, had no context. All she said was, even so, whatever you ask, that's what's going to happen. That's some rock-solid faith right there. And at the end of our time today, I want to challenge us to think that our our if only can be converted to even so if we will grasp the importance of this sequence of events. So miracles happen there. Yes, he went to the tomb. I, I, I think I've got that scripture up. Jesus said, didn't I tell you if you believed you'd see the glory of God? So he said, hey, move the stone away. I love what happened here. I'm not going to read this out loud, but, but Martha, pragmatic, spiritual, if only, even so, caught up in the moment. He says, move the stone. She said, ooh, he's ripe. <laughs> Been there four days. We don't really do the formaldehyde thing here. We, we kind of just cover them with perfume and hope it stays in the cave. Roll the stone away, he said. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you in advance. You've heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I say this for the people who are standing here so much of this series. God didn't need to do. He did this for us. He did this so we could understand that when we are dead in the tomb and ripening in our sin, that he died for us. 
that he did something about it. Our if only turned into an even so. He says, I did this for them. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come on out of there. I bet Lazarus wasn't expecting to hear that. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said, unbind him, let him go. That's symbolic as well. When we come out of our tomb, he says, unbind you. Uh, uh, you hadn't got it all figured out. One of our, our, our senior adults, the, the very first pastor of this church, Andy Smith, he wrote a poem about it. He says, have you ever noticed that there is no record of anything that Lazarus did after he was raised from the dead? Not one of the people healed by Jesus made a single contribution to the early church, common people, ordinary lives who used their new freedom in common, ordinary ways. That's the rest of us, right? We're, we're common people. And in this obscure place, Bethany, it was a place of obscurity. It was a place of expectation. It was a place of miracles. And now Lazarus is unbound. We don't know how much time happens between chapter 11 and chapter 12. In chapter 11, Jesus wasn't ready to, to have the sequence of events that started with the triumphal entry. That he wasn't ready for those things to happen just yet. And so it says at the very end of chapter 11 that because the, the pressure had gotten so intense, because there was a, a general roar about the miracle, they not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus. <laughs> I'd love that conversation. Lazarus, they're threatening to kill you. Been there. <laughs> Done that. <laughs> Got the bindings. <laughs> Greatest statement of all time. And so in chapter 12, he returns to Bethany. He returns to the place of this miracle, but this time he knows that the events of, of, of the Passion Week are about to unfold. John started chapter 11 by saying six days before Passover, and we think it was about a week later that Jesus came back to Bethany, came back to Jerusalem, and that started the sequence of events that, that had the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so they had a party for him. They said, we never really got to thank you for the Lazarus deal, but, but now we want to. We want to have a banquet in your honor and so, so he come to this dinner thing. And so there was a, a, a dinner thing going on. And, and so he came to Bethany uh, where Lazarus was six days before the Passover. Jesus raised him from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him. Martha served. That's what she did. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Not sure what nard is. It's a, it's a derivative of a plant, but it's expensive. Anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. In just a few verses, Judas, uncharacteristically, is going to give us the value of this thing. Now, audience participation part of the show, how many of you are doing taxes right now? Some of you better get busy. <laughs> Government's going to come looking for you. Well, when you fill in that line that says, this is how much money I made this year, your, your total gross income, 
That's how much this jar of perfume cost. Now, you have to scale it because some of you are doing pretty good. Some of you, not so much. But you scale it and go, whatever it costs me to work 300 days, that's how much this jar of perfume. Perfume was a commodity. It could be, uh, it could be bought. It could be sold. It could be traded. You could use a little bit of it, use uh, uh, just a, enough of it. And if you had hard times, you could take it to the market and sell it. It was, it was a marketable commodity. And she used the entire pound on him. The translation would have been about 13 to 14 ounces of this stuff. She poured it on his feet and she wiped it with her hair. Well, there's always a reaction, right? Judas, one of his disciples, here's another Easter egg that John left us. He who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Denarii was a day's wage, so 300 days. He said, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and had his hand in the money bag. So John gives us, this is the only really time that Judas has talked about poorly in the Scripture. But why here? Right? Why, does, why, did, why is it here? I, I happen to think it's because he wanted a contrast between Mary's devotion and Judas's hypocrisy. Here a disciple who had followed him around for three years is concerned about extravagant worship. Well, let's go back to the extravagant worship. Mary's gift was humble. I think about what I bring to Jesus and is, how much of it is in humility? How much of it do, do, do I give and, and not care if anybody knows? How much of it do I give and not even care what happens to it? How much do I, I give in, in absolute humility? I think that's why the Judas story, it contrasts her humility with his arrogance. How much of our giving is extreme like that? How much of our, our giving is just so over the top? I mean, everybody watching this thing went, whoa, <laughs> did you see that? That's a lot. Same, same thing back in, in, John, in Luke chapter 7, the, the song that Eris seeing is based on that. Uh, an alabaster jar, the, the lid was broken. It was in a sealed glass container because when you broke it open, you had to use all of it. Extreme. But this last part really got my attention. When a Jewish girl came of age, in other words, when she, when she was sort of regarded as not a child anymore but a young woman, her hair was bound up. She, she put it up in a whatever you call hair piled on top of your head. And it was never let down in public. Never. If, if a woman's hair was loose in public, it was considered a reflection of her morals. That's why in Luke chapter 7, it is assumed that this was a, a sinful woman. One of the reasons her hair was down, her hair was unbound, her hair was loose. A, a young Jewish girl never unbound her hair. And yet, this particular occasion... She not only lets her hair down to wipe Jesus' feet, she does it in the middle of dinner. 
It wasn't that after-dinner thing where the, where the men have reclined to brandy and cigars. It was, it was during dinner. It was right in the middle of dinner. It was, it, 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 people were eating and passed the potato. Whoa, what's this girl doing? And, and she didn't care. It was humble. It was extreme. It was without any sense of self-consciousness. Who, who cares what people think about me? I have found Jesus. And she did so in Bethany. It was a place where people knew they needed Jesus. One more thing that's pretty significant that happened there. It was a place of promise. In Luke uh, chapter 24, the Scripture tells us this. And he led them out, Jesus, and I put all three of these on the same screen so you could see him, as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. After the resurrection, after everybody saw him, after he hung out with the disciples, after more than 500 people saw him, he ascended back to heaven and he did it from Bethany. The disciples stood staring upwards. Two angels appeared to them and said, what are you looking about? Get to work. The same Jesus who has been taken from you will come back in the same way you saw him leave. Picture it. Go to Bethany, top of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives goes down into the Kidron Valley, Garden of Gethsemane down there at the bottom. Then it makes its way back up. Cemetery that the Arabs put because they said our Jewish rabbi cannot return through a cemetery. And it says that he's going to come back through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And by the way, let's fill up the eastern gate with concrete because that'll stop him. Uh Uh-uh. In Zechariah's prophecy, he says, on that day. Sound familiar? little tune we've been carrying around in our heads? On that day. The day he returns. The day Acts 1.11 refers to. The day that Jesus will call a close to all the pain and all the agony and all the nonsense that's going on around our world. He will call it to a close that day because he will return. That is the gospel It is the essence of what we believe, that he came, he was born of a virgin, he lived on this earth, he died on the cross for my sins, and on that day, he will return. And guess where he will return? His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, about two miles east of Jerusalem, Bethany. The same way he went, he's coming back. He doesn't care about a cemetery, and he certainly doesn't care about concrete. He's going through that eastern gate into the city of Jerusalem to proclaim an eternal reign. We've got to hang on to that promise. Got to hang on to that promise. And on the basis of that and only that, our if-only prayers can become even-so prayers. Our if only you would have, if only you could have, if only you should have, even so, let your glory be known. Because if you can use an obscure village like Bethany to raise a man from the dead, to demonstrate what true worship really looks like, to ascend into heaven and to return, if you can do that in that little hamlet east of Jerusalem, 
You can do anything, anywhere, with anybody. Pray with me. Lord, you're good on that day. On that day, you will unbind us. On that day that we begin to follow you, you set us free. And I pray that our thoughts and our prayers can turn from even so, from if only to even so. Even so, you do what you do. And we're grateful. Father, if there's one here who has never begun to follow you, if there's one here who's waiting on more evidence or a different feeling, I, I would pray that this would be that day where this place becomes their place of obscurity where they first begin to walk with Jesus. That they would see a green shirt out in the lobby or a pastor here in the room and say, this day I want to know Jesus as Savior. On Easter Sunday, I want to be baptized. I want to, to have that symbolism in my life that says I am born again. I am new. I am set free from the prison of my tomb because you called my name and I was unbound. God, let our if-only prayers turn into even-so prayers because we have glimpsed your glory anywhere, anytime, with anybody. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.